Hey folks, this is Steve Adubato. This is the Leadership Hour. A, let's just say this. It is the most compelling, interesting, and valuable hour you will find on the AM uh, 970. I shouldn't say that because then there are other great shows on mm -hmm. the show. Uh, it's one of the many great shows on AM 970. You also can catch us by podcast. And I'm here with my co-anchor, Mary Gamba, Brian Brodeur in the studio as well. Mary, uh, by the way, if people want to do the podcast thing for millennials, mm -hmm. digitally aware folks, how can they find us, please? It is so amazing, the technology. There is Apple iTunes where they can subscribe, also Google Play. And if you are subscribing, please give us a good rating if you like what you hear. That'd be fantastic. They can also follow you on Twitter, Steve Adubato, that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, as well as on Facebook, Steve Adubato, Ph.D. And we have a lot of great free articles. They can find information about your book, Lessons in Leadership. That is a really good book mm -hmm. published by Rutgers University Press. And what makes Lessons in Leadership by Steve Adubato so compelling, Mary? Uh, because you wrote it, and there's a nice big picture of you on the front of the book. So. The airbrush picture? Yes, absolutely. Takes a couple years off, some lines away? It's perfect. We all have to do what we need to do to stay relevant and good-looking, and it worked very well. And they can find out information on our website, stand-deliver.com. Yes. And so here's the deal, folks. Other than the fact that Mary is uh, saying nice things about me because her performance review is coming up soon, which I'm sure she'll ask for another raise. The thing that makes the Leadership Hour so valuable is that we bring on leaders of all stripes. We've had, we just had a CEO. We had the CEO of the major public broadcasting company in the nation, uh, Neil Shapiro, on with us recently. We had Mike Marin, the CEO of Holy Name. We had the CEO of the Healthcare Foundation. Mm -hmm, Marsha And the person who heads up learning and development for the 11th largest accounting firm in the nation. Yeah, it's amazing the great guests we have on, and we keep learning new things from all the various guests that we have on. But I said, Mary, why don't we have some, let's say, non-traditional leaders, people who are not so much in the corporate world, if you will, and people may or may not know the folks we're bringing on. And one of the folks I decided that we would bring on is a young lady I know very well because she is a leader in my world. She is a coach. She is an entrepreneur. She is someone who is making a difference in the lives of a lot of people. Her name is Hakika Wise, founder and creator of Kika Stretch Studios and the, quote, Kika Method. Kika, how you doing, my friend? I'm good. Thank you so much. So the deal is Kika has developed this method of stretching that she'll describe in a moment. And I do not go on a regular basis we were talking about church on another show. As I don't go to church on a regular basis, mm -hmm. I don't go to stretching on a regular basis, but I do go and I do struggle to become more flexible. Mary shared before that she is not very flexible and was thrown out at five years old of gymnastics. Well, first ballet, they said ballet was not meant for me. So they moved me down the hall to gymnastics. And then the gymnastics teacher, I remember a very nice Russian woman, said, no, 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 this not for you. And I, I'm not good at accents, Brian, Clearly. so I apologize. So then my parents tried me in softball and soccer, and it was the right fit for me. Isn't that perfect? Well, Kika, what's interesting, Kika, you, you had some professional dance background, correct? I did. I went to Montclair State, and I graduated with a BFA in dance. And then? I acted and danced professionally, television and film. I was in the circus. I did a lot of things. The circus. I might do good in the circus. No. no? Co yeah, coordinating the circus, not being in the circus, because <laughs> you're a good event planner. But then Kika, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Yes. The whole thing about stretching Talk about leadership and being an entrepreneur. You took it to a whole nother level. 
Tell us the, I'm going to go old school. Give us the Reader's Digest version. What happened? <laughs> so imagine lying on a mat and having a coach gently stretch out your entire body for you. So we help take away the tension that's been trapped inside of your body for years. So seven and a half years ago, I decided to use my training as a dancer to formalize this assisted stretching method. So I started with one client. I tried it on them. They loved it. And I slowly began to educate the public as to why assisted stretching was vital for the comfort in their lives. So people thought I was crazy. Why do I need someone to help me stretch? I constantly educated people. I hired someone to wear a Gumby costume to walk around the streets <laughs> passing out flyers. She did. While stretching. I, I need did. to see a picture of that. Um, that sounds hysterical. I still have this suit, so um, if anyone is willing to try it on, <laughs> you know. I think we might have to put Steve in that suit. No, I'm not flexible <laughs> enough. But, Kika, that was part of the marketing and the branding of the Kika method, right? Yes, absolutely. I always use guerrilla marketing tactics because when I first started my business, I only had $500 and that's it. So I had to use what I had, which was my creativity. And that's how I started the method. And describe where you are today. Today, I am now labeled as the youngest female franchisor in the United States. I franchise the companies. I have five locations, and now I'm teaching others how to open up stretching studios and how to provide this service for their local communities. So it's really exciting, and I'm very happy about the work we're doing. By the way, as we speak, just yesterday, I believe that Kika gave a impressive speech at Montclair State University, my alma mater. She was there. She was featured in the New York Times. She's been featured in so many publications. I don't know if I can talk about the other thing, which you've told me about, which is not public yet. No. <laughs> I will not do that. See? This, let's say, a very popular show she may wind up on. But that being said, Kika, let me ask you this. The entrepreneurial marketing, branding skills that you have brought to bear as an entrepreneur, which are all part of being a leader, where would you say you, quote unquote, have learned them? So my mother was and is a serial entrepreneur. So I used to grow up watching her go to Staples, printing out documents, <laughs> stapling them. And I became so obsessed with the whole idea of creating something from nothing. So I would say my mother was my biggest role model and still is. But there's more than that. You started reading. She's like, I got this new book. I went, to, I went online. I found another book. And I have an article here. And you're constantly trying to learn from other people's experiences because? Yes, absolutely. Besides reading You Are the Brand by Steve Adubato. Um, that is a good book. <laughs> what a great plug. Yes. I was not um, fishing. I swear I was not. I My first year in business, all I did was read books on business, guerrilla marketing tactics, and I just started using those strategies. And I'm a firm believer that you can always learn how to do things if you just read about them. So I've had some great mentors, and I've just been, you know, going with the flow, and it's been working very well. What about trial and error as a leader? Wow. Trial and error. I used to be afraid to try because I didn't want to fail. But then I realized great leaders fail all the time. They learn from their experiences, and that's what makes them a great leader. So I definitely i am not afraid 
to, you know, try new things at this point because I know that's the only way to learn and also grow. The other part that's interesting is that Kika, by the way, we're talking with Hakika Wise, who is the founder and creator of Kika Stretch Studios. There are five of them. She's also, she's incorporated, if you will, or patented the Kika method. And I can attest to how valuable and helpful it's been to me. And if I went more often, it would be even more valuable. But that being said, you've had to hire, coach, train, fire yes. people who work for you. Yes. That was not natural for you. How'd you learn that? No. When I hired my first staff member, it was just a blind thing that I did. I didn't know what to look for, the right traits to look for. I did, it was trial and error. Over the years, I defined what the type of person we were looking for, what qualities they should have, and I was able to hone in on that. Such as? What were you looking for? I was looking for someone who was confident, someone who is reliable, someone who can also be their own leader. And so... Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean? Hold on. Sorry for interrupting. What does it mean to be your own leader? You're the leader. They work for you. How is it that they have to be their own leader? So someone who's driven enough to lead with the material that I give them. So I, I learned how to delegate. I learned that I had to trust people to do tasks. And in those tasks, they had to lead themselves and be driven enough to complete them. So... I'm the leader, but I also look for leaders within my staff members and people who are not afraid to take initiatives to help me reach our goals. Let's talk about delegation. Mary, oh, you've had, yeah. Mary, you've had some issues learning to delegate over the years. Have you not? Control freak? A, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say Mary does everything so well, and she was raised somehow as a perfectionist. I don't know. That wasn't my family. Mm -hmm. And let's just say Mary has had a hard time over the years of the 18 years we've worked together. Yeah. Um, delegating certain tasks because she's better than everyone no, else. No, if you want something done right, you do it yourself. Yeah, but what about if your portfolio continues to grow and you have more and more responsibilities? You can't be the one to do everything. That's why Kika, who has five stores, she can't do everything. So what's up with you people who have to control everything? I'm still trying to figure out the delegation thing. I do it as much as I can. <laughs> I try not to hover, but I still do a lot of it myself. You do? I do. You'll jump in and say, listen. Listen. This isn't going to get right if I don't or do I it. Or I love when you go to delegate something or you ask someone for help and then they immediately say, well, you know, that's a new responsibility on my to-do list. Am I going to make more money? They do, don't they? Yes. And that's not the, by the yeah. all the years that Mary worked for me, and I just kept putting more stuff on her plate. Yeah. She never asked that question, how much am I going to make? But she wound up doing very well. Yes. Because, but, go ahead. But I don't think you need to ask in that situation. I think that the truly great leaders are those who take on new responsibilities, want to constantly challenge themselves, put themselves, be uncomfortable, you know, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yep. And take risks. And, you know, this radio show, Kiko, when Steve said, oh, you're going to do this radio show with me. And I said, no, it's not my cup you, of tea. Did you say how much? I did not say how much. <laughs> Although now that it's so successful, maybe I should. No, I mean, no, I, I was just joking. Stop, uh, stop, okay. please. But, uh, yeah, you give it a shot and you see. And, you know, I told Steve, too. I said, if you don't like, you know, how I do on it, then just tell me all about giving feedback. And, um, yeah. So, Kiki, jump back in here because we're talking about delegation, which as a friend of yours, as a client of yours, as the perfectionist that you are, mm -hmm. that hasn't been easy for you delegating, has it? Not at all. Particularly because <laughs> particularly you can't be at all five locations at one time. There you go. 
So, because in your head you think no one can do this like me. I don't want it to get messed up. And nobody cares as much and as we do. And it's got your name on it, Kika. It has my name on it. Um, <laughs> and so what I've learned is that you really just have to start to trust people and their abilities because there are other smart, intelligent people who can also help you do the work that you're trying to do. Once I started trusting people, it was easy for me to see that it didn't all set on fire. And I just started delegating more and more. But it's truly about finding the right people. What about when they screw up? Have you had, as young as you are, has it been difficult for you to say, you know, to a particular person, trying his or her best, I imagine, and it's just not working out? Have you had a difficult time saying as a leader, you know, this just isn't going to work? So I try to be as honest as possible with people, and usually people know when it's not working. So I feel like it's about coming to them as a human and not just pointing fingers, but just sitting down with them and expressing, you know, why it's not working, how it's not working, and how it's not about them not being a good person. It's just them not being a good fit for what's happening right now. And just talking to them like a human being, I feel like goes miles instead of ridiculing them and pointing a finger. Where'd so you learn that's that? my approach. Where'd you learn that? I learned it from how I would like to be spoken to. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I try to put myself in their position. And if someone is pointing the finger at me, I immediately shut down and boom, that's it. So I try to talk in a way where people don't put up their guards. And I think that's the key. So I learned by my own experiences. You, know, you talked about your mom before, who I've met, and it's just a first-class lady. But oh, also, thank you. you know, she just is. And your son is a huge part of your world. Yes. And by the way, Kika got married last year. Yep, April. It's about seven months. So actually, a beautiful. <laughs> it was a wonderful ceremony. I was thrilled to be there. Thank you. Um, thank you. But what's interesting is your son... Is such a big part of your world, and I wonder sometimes, and your son's how old right now? He's turning nine in November. Right, because our daughter Olivia and your son are very close in age. And I think sometimes when your son gets to see you do what you do to the degree that a nine-year-old can, what impact do you think, A, it's having on him and his view of the world and the kind of person he may become? And two, what responsibility do you feel in that regard? I think it's a beautiful experience for him because he gets to see that, you know, some people have jobs and they work for other people, but then he sees me creating something out of nothing and just being an entrepreneur. So he gets to see both sides of the way the world works. I always tell people that at this point, he gives me some of the best business advice and I'm not making it. Give us one <laughs> example, Kika. Okay. So there was a client who, um, she was about like 20 minutes late and we had to reschedule her because there was another appointment after her. So we tried to explain, she still was upset. My son was there. And so when she left, he said, mom, you should buy her chocolate. You know, you should give her something that tastes good. It'll make her happy. And so aside from apologizing via email, we sent her a box of chocolates. This woman has been one of our most frequent clients. She comes twice a week, and it worked. So it's like little things like that. <laughs> I know he's only eight, but 
we seriously have long conversations about my brand and he is now labeled the vice president. So <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Um, Kika, real quick before I let you go, what are the plans for your team for the Kika brand, if you will? By the way, if people want to go on your website, where do they go? Kika Stretch Studios with an S dot com. That's K I. Yes, K I K A Stretch Studios. What's the game as a leader, as an entrepreneur? What's the plan the next few years? So, given the fact that you're rapidly aging. I don't even think she's in her 30s, which freaks oh. me out. She's not even in her 30s. I am. I am. But that's she why is. I keep stretching, because it keeps me young. Um, <laughs> so th this year, we have three more deals that we're closing. So three more franchisees who will open by December. Next year, we plan to open six more franchise locations. And our overall goal is to just be the neighborhood provider of assisted stretching and local communities. So we're taking over New Jersey, and then we're going to go to other states next year. <laughs> so being a great leader also means having great confidence in oneself, even if they're afraid. Yeah. Having a big vision. Yes. Executing it and working an obscene number of hours. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And this now is as a, this point. is yeah. this is as a newlywed, by the way. <laughs> well done. As, yeah. Final words of uh, inspiration, Kika, to everybody listening right now. Say, listen, I can't do that. Someone says, I can't do that. That's not me. I'm too old. I'm too young. I've got too many responsibilities. It doesn't work for me. Good for Kika. Not me. You say. No one is more special than you are. Everybody is equally special. So if you see someone else doing it, that means you can do it too. Stop making excuses. Stop being afraid and just go after what you want and go after your dreams. That's why we're alive. Make yourself proud. I'm proud of you, Kika. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mary. And Thank I, you. And I know I'm your best, if infrequent, client. I know I'm you your best. You are the best. Were, were you that late? Were you the one who was late and she had to send chocolates no, to No, that wasn't me, but I'm just late all the time You are anyway. late all the time. That's why I had to ask that question. Time Thank management. You, Kika. Enough, enough, Mary. Stop. Thank, Thank you, you, Kika. Thank Take you, care. Kika. Bye-bye. How cool is it? By the way, Steve Adubato here, Mary Gamba, Brian Brodeur in the studio. This is the Leadership Hour on AM 970. Check us out on the podcast as well on the second half hour of the Leadership Hour. You can listen to State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we're talking to some government leader somewhere making a difference or not, and we'll challenge them on that. What's it like to listen to a young woman? I think she's barely 30, Kika in this case. I mean, building it from scratch. I think it's amazing. I wish I could be half as passionate about anything in my life as she sounded in I'm, terms of- I'm sorry, of... What? we work together. You realize you just insulted me? I'm just talking about my personal life. Okay, now, I am so fulfilled in All my right, professional don't even, life. Forget about me. Go back to Kika. And just hearing her passion and hearing the lessons that she's learned and not giving up. It's just very inspiring for all of us who got to hear her story. You know, what's interesting for people. And someone might say this isn't a leadership thing. Oh, you're talking about business, Steve. You're talking about sales. You're talking about entrepreneurism. I don't know. Isn't that leadership? So because I know Kika, mm -hmm. and I know when she started, and again, someone says, well, my parents gave me $50,000 to start or whatever it was. That's fine. I mean, that's great. If you can, more power to you if you have support around you. But I do know she started with the 500. And I thought to myself, 
how many times she got knocked down, rejected, people told her, terrible idea, or then she got to a certain point and someone says, let me buy that thing from you. Mm -hmm. I'll give you X amount, I'll buy that thing. She's like, no, I'm going to try to do this mm -hmm. on my own with the team. That takes a certain amount of character it does. And, and confidence. People say, oh, I'm fascinated by the question of confidence and leadership. Someone says, oh, you're a great leader because you're so confident. It means you're not afraid to do things. And my response, as I've worked with other people, and then also in terms of myself, whatever leadership traits I may or may not have, it's like, no, it's not that you're not afraid. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of losing. I'm afraid of it failing. I'm afraid that we won't bring in enough sponsorship. I'm afraid that I'm not going to be that good at it. I'm afraid that the people who have to make decisions around about this thing I want to do are going to say no and get rejected. But you do it anyway. You do it anyway. The true leaders have to do it anyway. They don't know any other way. They believe in whatever it is so passionately that they have to do it. And if that means doing it and failing, at least they did it. Let's talk about failing. Mm-hmm. So I think you were just coming on board. Mary's been with me for 18 years. We've said this before. I remember, and I think I've said this before on the air, we were talking about Lessons in Leadership as a book, <clears throat> the fifth book that I've been proud to write with a great group of people who have helped. And Mary's helped me along the way. But the first book, Speak from the Heart, mm -hmm. which was published in 2001, you came to work with me what year? Yeah, I actually started working with you in 2000. My first day working with you was my one-year wedding anniversary. So it was June 19th, 2000. And starting work with me was more special? It was just phenomenal. That's why I remember it more than my wedding anniversary. Um, and well, I'm still happily to, married, uh, by the way. Are, apologies to Bill Gamba. That's fine. So, but here's the thing. I remember we must have been writing Speak from the Heart in 2000. Mm -hmm. It got published in 2001 by Simon & Schuster. And that, and that sounds great, and it is great, and it feeds your ego. But the reality is you talked about failure. I've said this before. I believe I'll be conservative. I think there are 30 rejections from different publishing houses, mm -hmm. and not all as big as Simon & Schuster. Trust me, that's why I was still shocked that they published the book. And I remember thinking, if someone else is telling you no, mm -hmm. they don't say you're not good enough. What they say is, we don't think we're the right publishing house. It's not the right product for us. Maybe the time is not right. They'll give you a million different things. But basically, the answer is no. And I think to myself, how many times Kika must have heard that? We all hear it. I mean, why do we keep going? You need and what does to, that have to do with leadership? Well, I heard something a long time ago, and it always stuck with me, is that those people that truly succeed don't wait for someone else to tell them that they can, meaning that if you believe in what you are doing, whether you've got a whole village and army of people behind you that are right there pushing you along, or whether you're doing it by yourself in a silo just independently, you need to believe that you can do it. You don't need somebody else to lift you up and build you up to take that next what step. What about all the rejection? Well, I think there's a tipping point. I think for some people, a quality of leadership is to say when you're going to walk away from something as well. And I know it sounds counterintuitive what I'm saying, right. but in some cases, that rejection is maybe telling you that you are going in the wrong direction and it's leaving your eyes, your ears, your you know emotions open. Mm. But the best leaders that I have seen are so committed and so passionate. And if they get rejected, they may look into it deeper and find out why, and they may become with a new way of going at it. Let's stay on that part. Mm -hmm. A new way. Sure. So stay on that. Yeah. By the way, Mary Gamba here in the studio with Steve Adubato, Brian Brodeur. This is the Leadership Hour on AM 970, as well as mm -hmm. on our podcast. 
Mary, you were with me the day a major newspaper, when newspapers were newspapers, mm -hmm. by far the most read newspaper in the state. I had had a column there on leadership and communication yeah, for... Since before I was with you. Yeah, yeah. so I think it was 10 years. Mm -hmm. I think it was. I remember getting a call from, let's just say, the highest ranking person at the newspaper and said, yeah, this will be your last column on Sunday. And I remember being devastated yeah. because that column was, in some ways, like, and this isn't about me, per se. It's really about how you deal with rejection. That column was a big part of who I was. Mm -hmm. Every week I'd sit on, what do I want to say? How do I want to say it? And that became really a, a lot of the books I wrote came from the column. And why am I saying this? Because I remember when it happened, being devastated. I remember my ego being crushed. I remember feeling rejected and, mm -hmm. and down. And, and by the way, I lost a seat in the state legislature that I had held when I was 26 years old. I was elected at 25, out at 26, thought my life was over. And so believe me, I've had my fair of rejection, lots, failures, if you will. Mm -hmm. How long after we got the word from, let's say, the star ledger mm -hmm. that I was out as a columnist, how long did we start trying to come up with a different approach to get the content, the message of leadership and communication out in a potentially different format, which in many ways led to us sitting here right now doing the leadership hour, or am I romanticizing that whole experience? No, I remember exactly where we were when it happened. It was probably within a half hour, maybe an hour, we started to get creative and come up with other ways and put pen you know, to paper and, and to really say, okay, now what? Of course, we we're both shocked. You didn't see it coming. Most times that there's a, a breakup, oftentimes. Didn't, I didn't see it. You didn't see, I didn't see it coming. And then it's like, all right, you know, this stinks, but what are we going to do about it? Are we going to sit here and cry in a corner and throw our arms up in the air? And Not a real good strategy. No, doesn't do anybody any good. Oh, my God, I you did this it. to me. I'm such a good writer. Yeah. And, and this wasn't even fair. And by the way, you don't even have to pay me. Just put, like keep it in me. the paper. They don't like me. Yeah. I thought those you things. Did. Yeah, I think you even put it out there like, no, you don't even have to pay me. We'll just give it to you. And he's like, no, Steve, I still don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, you didn't actually have to share that, but go ahead. Yeah. And, and again. <laughs> Again, in your defense, it was because they were really revamping the whole paper. They, they were in survival mode. It had nothing to do. They were cutting everyone's column. It right. had nothing to do with the it, but it was still you weren't wanted anymore. Yes. And hearing that, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend that says it, a husband, a wife, your boss doesn't want you, a company is downsizing, it stinks to hear that message. But. But what you choose to do with it is what matters. I think it was Keith Harrell in his great book, Attitude is Everything, said, mm -hmm. And also, I think Gary Posh. I was going to say, yeah. Gary Posh in uh, uh, the last lecture. Yeah, the last lecture. He said, you cannot choose the cards you mm -hmm. are dealt, but you can choose the exactly. way you're going to play that yeah. hand. So go back. Mary and I sat there and said, wait a minute. What about if we created a digital column? And what about if we created the same sort of content, but shorten the column and offer tangible tips and made it go from communication, which was called the communication coach. There's a reason for this. Trust me. We changed into leadership. We go, mm -hmm. hold on, wait a minute. Communication is a small part of leadership. Yeah. Let's make it the leadership. I would be the leadership coach and let's take it and let's start bicycling it, getting it to different publications, different yeah. business publications. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, you, we don't have to pay. No, you don't have to pay for it. Just get it out mm -hmm. there. We got it out and distributed it, and we owned it mm -hmm. as opposed to a newspaper owning it. 
we decided to say, wait a minute, why don't we do a book called Lessons in Leadership? Hold on, wait a minute. What about a podcast radio show based on this? Am I? No, this is this is how it went. It was being creative. It became not about By the, the way, rejection. What does that do leadership, just to be clear? Because I don't want to make this, because it feels very self-serving right now. This was a leadership yeah. trait. And by the way, my instincts were in large mm-hmm. part to cry for a short right. period of time. Yeah, there's but no crying in baseball. but There isn't. No, there's or not. Or business and life and Yeah, leadership. you might have cried later, and that's fine, in your pillow. But that's, you know, where the best leaders yes. do their crying because your outward-facing self needs to be strong and confident and show your team. At that point, it was you and I working on this concept. And just we're going to do something. We're going to make something out of a bad situation. And that has everything to do with leadership. We didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. It didn't matter. It was the hope that there would be something more, something different. The creative minds coming together and saying, all right, this is a horrible situation, but what are we going to do about it? Because then it switches your focus instead of, we all know those people in in business. Poor me. Wow. We always say that, right? Wow. No, no, you always say that. (laughs) Mary comes from, by by the great Artie Lang, was he the one who said it? I think he was. Artie Lang was was, uh, talk about victims. Um, uh, He's a victim of himself and his disease, but mm-hmm. Artie Lang on Howard Stern, so we used to listen to him, and someone would say something, and what would he say? He would they would complain. and complain, and I don't have any patience. You have no I have especially zero for me. patience. I don't deal <laughs> with, if you are got a little case of the sniffles, all right, you know, you're going to fight through it if you're not feeling well, if you're having a bad day. Oh, the day, star and, dropped my column. You know, get over it. I, wow. I, I say it in a much worse way that's not appropriate for this radio show or podcast, but I do, and, and because life is short when it really comes down to it your control you are in complete control of how you are going not to the react circumstances. not the circumstances <clears throat> and if you are a true leader you need to lead the way and accept what happened of course it happened you can't deny the fact that you were you know by the way dropping a column is not the same as a million other really serious things that can course. happen in people's but lives but it's interesting and as you know and not to make it personal but literally my mom right now is dealing with a serious cancer diagnosis and everybody that calls me you know walks on eggshells and you know and I get it right because they don't know how I'm going to react and they're like you're doing so well your mom's doing so well i can't believe she's talking about it and we made a conscious decision and you said Randy Posh is a perfect example. He had terminal cancer. It was a professor, I believe, at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. And he said, I choose to celebrate. He was 47 years exactly. of age. I choose to celebrate my life mm-hmm. and not obsess over yeah. the impending outcome. Exactly. And how does sitting in a corner again saying, why me, poor me, it's not going to make any time that you have left any better. In business, saying poor me isn't going to I lost make, the contract. Doesn't matter. It, it doesn't. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. And to be a true leader of yourself, of your family, of your workforce, of your anybody that we have on, a, you know, Kika earlier just talking about driving her business. If she gave up when somebody told her no. And she many did. And many did. And many will in the future. She may try to change it, you know, change the brand, expand too quick, expand too slow. You need to be true to yourself and true to what you believe in. Because really, that's what you have is your belief and your passion for what you're doing. So interesting. I know. As, as I think about this whole leadership thing <clears throat> in the minute we have left, I often think that so much of being a really good leader is understanding your own strengths, but also understanding your vulnerabilities, dare I call them your weaknesses, and not giving into them. It doesn't mean we don't have weaknesses. It doesn't mean we don't have areas of blind spots. There's a new book I asked you to get mm-hmm. me. What's it called? I think it's called Blind Spots, yeah. isn't it? Leadership Blind Spots, yeah. right? It doesn't mean we don't have them. It means you don't 
succumb to them. Yes. It means you try to overcome them. Sometimes, oh, you're trying to make someone be what they're not. No, you're actually trying to maximize their strength and grow in the areas where they can grow. And one of them is the insecurities we have. And people who say they don't have them are not telling the truth. People who give in to them are not great leaders. And so I know this turned into a very deep conversation, and hopefully it was valuable to you, to Mary Gamba, who shares and doesn't really leave a lot not on the table. It's all on the table with Mary. <laughs> what you see is what you get. <laughs> yes. And if you could see Mary, you realize she's not just smart and talented. She's actually beautiful as well. Oh, geez. Thank you. Even though she dressed down for the radio. I chose to wear a suit and tie today. <laughs> I'm in my gym clothes. <laughs> Brian, why are you laughing? This is the worst. Well, we stress. talked about this before. <laughs> I literally came right from the gym after a shower. I wasn't going to give in on this. I'm giving up. Steve Adubato, this is the Leadership Hour with... Mary Gamba and Brian Brodeur on the great team that he has. Brian, plug your team again. Oh, yeah. Morgan and JP in the control room, keeping it going. And the name of your company is? Oh, East Main Media, down here in Little Falls, New Jersey. Website? EastMainMedia.com. Listen, we're all into branding, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know what, Mary? I want to say this on the air in a respectful way. I love you. Oh, that's great. I love you, too. It took you a while to say I love you back, but that's okay. (laughs) Steve Adubato, check you out next week. Hey, stay tuned for uh, State of Affairs with Steve Adubato. More great leaders on tap. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Patrick Dunnikin. At Gibbons, we believe that citizens need to be informed about the complex issues that affect their lives. That's why we're proud to support the programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by the law firm of Gibbons PC. St. Joseph's Health, a passion for healing. It's what's inside us. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Valley Bank. NJM Insurance Group. New Jersey Resources. And by International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. Promotional support provided by Insider NJ. And by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Welcome to State Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV studio in Newark, New Jersey. We are honored to uh, have the Honorable Attorney General in the great state of New Jersey, Grabeer Graywall. Good to see you, Attorney General. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, did you always, when you were growing up as a kid, by the way, where was that? Uh, Jersey City. I was born in Jersey City in Hudson, grew up in Bergen and Essex. Did you say to yourself, I want to be the Attorney General? Uh, no, I think I wanted to be a tennis player or an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I played high school tennis uh, competitively, and uh, I always thought I'd be an athlete, but uh, somehow stumbled into law school. Um, you have a background in law enforcement. You are the first Sikh American to be attorney general of the state, which means what to you and the rest of us? Well, I mean, it's an extraordinary responsibility. Uh, it's, no, it's a great responsibility to be the attorney general in the first place, uh, to be the chief law enforcement officer, but I think it's an added responsibility to be the first in anything. 
to, to be the first Sikh in this position, I think my mistakes are magnified because they reflect not just on me, but broadly speaking on the Sikh community. And, and then my successes are magnified. If I do this well, I think it, it benefits the entire Sikh community, which is a, a new immigrant community uh, relatively in the United States. And so if I can do it well, I can encourage others to. You, you know, it's interesting. There's a whole bunch of issues I want to talk about. The opioid crisis, mm -hmm. um, dealing with uh, gun control issues, environmental protection, immigration, et cetera. But I, I want to get this one out of the way. Okay. You've been asked a million times. You know where I'm going, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, the radio thing. Uh. So there's two characters on uh, 101.5. Yep. Um, I don't even know their names, and it doesn't matter. So they, they, they think they're being funny, and they make reference to you, and they don't even call you by your name, but they say the guy with, quote, the turban and right. whatever else. And then they sang Turban Man. I didn't even know that part. Yeah. That speaks for itself yeah. in terms of who they are and, and how they see their role as folks in the media. and Everything's supposed to be funny. I still don't get the joke. Mm -hmm. You handled it with class and dignity and just forgave them very quickly once they apologized because... It's, this is part of life for me, Steve. Uh, I have dealt with much worse than two radio hosts calling me Turban Man. Uh, I've, I've developed thick skin over the years, just growing up, looking the way I do, believing the way I do. So for me, I need to get back to work. I need to focus on, on being the chief law enforcement officer, the chief legal officer for this state. But I'll tell you, what bothered me about those two hosts was not how it affected me. What bothered me is that they said that as long as I wore my turban, I wasn't, it wasn't worth remembering my name that they reduce me and by extension everyone who shares my faith to the most visible aspect of our identity. And I think in this moment right now that we're living in, we have to be very careful, those of us with platforms in the media or in government, with the words we use, the words we choose, because we don't know who needs that slight push to go over the edge and to do something violent with somebody or to you know, say it's okay to act out on these types of beliefs. Because you know, when I was a Bergen County prosecutor, I dealt with this type of stuff, and it was on the chat boards and on the comment sections of the... Of hate the, stuff. Yeah, the hate stuff. How but, do you know when it tips over to someone taking yeah. words, because words matter, Yeah. and now they're violent? Well, I mean, I, I think we all just need to be more responsible, because we're seeing it across the country, right? I, I never thought in my lifetime I'd see people, white supremacists, protesting at a college campus, yelling, Jews will not replace us, and carrying torches and then running over a protester and killing her. So I think in this moment, we just need to be responsible. You don't know when it could push that person over the edge, when it could lead to conduct. And, and so that was my concern I'm with that radio situation. On this. I'm sorry for yeah. I promise I'll do the opioid stuff. That's fine. Things. I'm here. Yes, you're the chief law enforcement officer in this state. But to what degree do you worry about, think about, and are concerned about the tone and the tenor of what is being said literally at the highest offices office, singular, in our country out of the White House. And what does that have to do with the conversation we're having right now? I, I, I think it starts from the top, right? I think responsibility has to start from the top, that if we've got to set the tone as people with platforms. And I think when the highest office in our land, uh, the person occupying that seat, is pitting communities against each other, stripping people of their humanity, likening them to cockroaches and, and dehumanizing them to such an extent, it gives other people license to say, you know, maybe it's okay, because I, I see it happening at the top levels of and our if government. the president says I'm a nationalist, that means what to you? He says I'm just being a patriot. You interpret it how? I, I interpret it as legitimizing these folks, uh, you know, who, who view nationalism as the equivalent of, of, of you know, white supremacy and, and uh, these beliefs that are just bigoted and, and just antithetical to everything we stand for as Americans. Okay. So uh, the governor appoints you. 
It gives you uh, this portfolio, this mandate to deal with a whole range of issues. Ready to go through some? Yeah, let's do it. The opioid crisis. What is the role of the Attorney General's office dealing with a health issue like this? Yeah, I mean, it is a public health issue, but unfortunately, law enforcement is at the front lines of dealing with this crisis. Uh, I started off as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office right down the street here, and I, I never dealt with the, with the drug crisis from this perspective. We put away large-scale heroin dealers and organized uh, conspiracies to import large-scale quantities of drugs. When I became the Bergen County prosecutor, they gave me a phone, and, and I would get every overdose in the county. I would get every Narcan save in the county, every fat fatal overdose in the county. And so it became very real for me that this was a law enforcement issue because it's our cops running to homes to try to catch somebody before they overdosed fatally uh, to revive them with Narcan, with Naloxone. And it was us that, you know, as law enforcement, that were in this cycle of arrest, mm. overdose, Narcan save, trying to run to that next fatality before it, it happened. And so as attorney general, when you have oversight over 30-plus thousand law enforcement officers, I think it's incumbent on us to sort of shift the conversation, that it's not uh, an entirely uh, uh, locking up people with, with the disease. It's trying to get them the help that they need. And that's what we've tried to do at the Attorney General's office by pushing people, low-level drug offenders, into treatment options. We have innovative programs. And we're starting to see some progress. And, and law, law enforcement has bought into this. Attorney General, uh, by the way, we put up the Attorney General's office uh, website so people can find out about, not just about you, but about some right. of the initiatives that you and your team are involved in. Um, the whole DACA thing fascinates me, the whole question of immigration, right. particularly in light of the conversation we just were having. Right. Okay. So there are 15 other attorney, state attorneys general that are suing the Trump administration for what as it relates to this? So we're trying to stand up for our residents. Um, Explain what DACA means to so, those who don't know what the acronym is. So, uh, you know, DACA is a federal program that was stood up during the Obama administration. It's divert, deferred action for childhood arrivals. These are kids who came in here at a very young age through no fault of their own, who grew up here, who have gone to school. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're working with us. They're in our society. Uh, and so the program allowed them to come out of the shadows, you know, have some normalcy in their lives and not fear deportation and have some protection to be able to go to school and to thrive and, and to, you know, experience some part of the American dream. So what's the attack on the federal government? So, so this administration has decided that it wants no part of defending DACA, a program that was stood up by the prior administration. So what we've seen, uh, there have been a number of cases out there, um, but I'll give you one example. There was a case in Texas recently where six Republican attorneys general sought the repeal of the DACA program. Since we were not involved as parties in the, any of the other DACA litigation, we went down to Texas and we intervened in that case. We said because the federal government, which was being sued by these Republican attorneys general, won't stand up to defend this program, mm -hmm. we will, because 17,000 New Jerseyans who are DACA recipients are affected by this. And, and we want them to not go back into the shadows, but we want to protect them so they could continue to live their lives as they have been over the last number of years. And so we won a temporary reprieve in that case in Texas. Let's try this. Um, real quick, officer drilling. Again, so many of these items fall into the category of the attorney general's office. I'm thinking, yeah. why? We just had the head of the DEP here, the Department right. of Environmental Protection. What do you have to do with it? So, Offshore drilling. <laughs> so, so the way it works is we're the chief legal officer. The DEP commissioner can't bring lawsuits on her own. We have all the lawyers of the state at the attorney general's office. And so we work in concert uh, with the commissioners, with Commissioner McCabe, in figuring out whether policy 
coming out of Washington or being curtailed by Washington affects New Jersey. And, and that's the number one decision mm -hmm. point for us. Right? There, there's a lot of uh, sensationalism in the media about what we're doing at the AG's office, that we're reflexively anti-Trump. That's not the case. We, we You're anti-what, though? We have two questions. Is the policy out of D.C. affecting New Jersey? Right? And if it's affecting New Jersey and it's unconstitutional, that's the second question, or unlawful, then we'll stand up. If it's not affecting New Jersey and it's lawful, then we're not getting involved. In this case, offshore drilling, uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Zinke, gave Florida a pass. We have 100-plus miles of coastline here that we need to protect. What's at risk? Our, our, our livelihood, uh, you know, the, the resources of our shoreline, the economy, the jobs at the shore. You know, if you have offshore drilling, all of that could be negatively impacted. But here's the thing, Steve. Florida got a pass. Why did Florida get a pass? And why didn't New Jersey get a pass? And so we sued the administration to find out. We sent a FOIA request to say, hey, what conversations did you have with Florida? And, and why did they get exempted from this offshore uh, drilling program? And why can't New Jersey avail itself to the same benefits as Florida? I'm, gonna, I'm curious about this one, too. The whole salt deductions, state and local taxes. Right. So if you live in New Jersey, you probably know this. So the, uh, the Trump administration, Republicans in Congress, support the idea of, uh, look, 10 grand, that's it, across the nation. Your state income tax, your property tax, you put them together. Historically, we could deduct mm -hmm. them. 10 grand, that's the cap. In New Jersey, let's just say, for many, that does not cover even close to the, uh, the whole question of what we pay in state and local property taxes. Trump administration argues, and I'm not going to ask you to argue tax policy. Right. It's not what you're here for. But they'll say, wait a minute, the, the tax deal that we cut helps middle class folks. Now, all of a sudden, you're involved in this and saying, that you think this is what, unconstitutional, illegal? That's right. Because everything has to be a legal question for the AG's office to be involved. What's illegal about the administration saying, you can, we're going to cap it at 10 grand, your deductions? Well, it, it's unconstitutional, Steve. It violates the 16th Amendment and the 10th Amendment. How so? Explain this to so, us. There's, before there was a revenue code, there was always a provision. I mean the IRS revenue code. Right. Before there was, you know, a federal income tax, you know, going before right. the, the codes. Before there was a federal income tax, we always had the ability to make these deductions at the local level. And for them to take away this deduction also takes money out of our state coffers, too. Our state should have the ability to, to also raise revenues through taxes to pay for the essential services here. And now, if we're not allowing this deduction, there's less money for the states to now use for, for the benefit of the states. That's you think a, it's punitive? That, that's a Tenth Amendment violation, and it is punitive because... You do. Because the conversations that were uncovered when, when this was being considered, when the SALT deduction was being considered, in, in addition to the unconstitutionality of it, right, because it's always been there, there was conversations with Mnuchin and others at, at the federal Mnuchin level. Mnuchin and Treasury uh, Mnuchin. Right. There were Mnuchin. Right. There were conversations where they said, uh, back and forth, not my words, theirs, that this was to penalize blue states. And, you don't really believe that. You don't believe that the Trump administration and the, the leaders in the Trump administration having to do with fiscal policy said, let's pick the states that voted Democrat, let's stick it to them and give them the shaft when it comes to tax policy because they have high property taxes and they pay more income tax. You really believe that? It, it's, it's, not, it's not whether I believe it or not. It's what they said in the conversations that were taking place and in the, in the record that, that we've been able to develop. The case is, is pending in, in the Southern District of New York. This is what the, the conversation was in the background, that let's, you know, let's give it to the blue states. Well, respectfully, in the end, doesn't the IRS decide on this and not the courts? Well, it's, it, it's, the courts will decide right now. It's pen, there's a case pending in the Southern District of New York. Uh, they, the federal government filed their motion to dismiss. Our response is due, yeah. uh, and there'll be an argument. 
Give me 30 seconds on gun control. So it's about gun safety. Way, every time we do a program, we're doing it right before Thanksgiving. We just pray there's not another uh, horrific incident involving guns and right. violence and killing. Right. We're, you know, from my role as chief law enforcement officer, it's about public safety. It's about law enforcement safety. So the, the bills that have been put forward by the Murphy administration, by this legislature, that give me the tools to go after uh, gun traffickers and straw purchasers, that give me the tools to, to, to go after those who are making these ghost guns or selling the parts for these ghost guns. Or 3D ghost guns? Ghost guns are these partially completed guns. They're manufacturers who, who, who advertise on the Internet. We've sent them cease and desist letters. They sent partially completed assault weapons, and then they'll send you a link to YouTube on how to assemble them. They don't have a serial number. They don't have a way for us to trace it, and that makes it difficult for, for if we recover them in gun crimes for us to trace them for law enforcement. But it puts guns in the hands of people without background checks. And so those tools are what we need as law enforcement officers to, to ensure public safety and law enforcement safety in this day and age. By the way, Steve Adubato here. Uh, we're talking to the Attorney General of, uh, of New Jersey, uh, Grabeer Graywall. I'm curious about this. The, the other question of community policing, mm -hmm. the whole question of... Uh, of relations. We did a whole series. If you want to look on our website, our team will put it up right now at steveautobato.org. Check out a series of programs we did on police minority relations. What is the role of the Attorney General's office in trying to improve relationships between police and the minority community? That's something that, that's very close to me. It's something that I think I could facilitate as Attorney General. Uh, and let me just say this. I would like to spend my time on fighting violent crime, fighting the opioid crisis, which we talked about, and improving police community relations. I'm distracted by stuff coming out of Washington, and I need to stand up for New Jersey in those cases. In police community relations, there are divides between law enforcement and community all across the state and all across this country. And what we've done at the Attorney General's office is bring people together. We had our 21 county prosecutors hold four quarterly meetings this year on different topics ranging from how we investigate officer-involved shootings to bias offenses to immigration issues to the opioid crisis. Those are four community meetings in each county, and they're supposed to seed a conversation because it's easier to have a conversation in a church basement than by a yellow police tape. And if we could have that understanding and get to know each other in a, in a peaceful setting, when there is an unfortunate situation, I'm hopeful that there's trust between law enforcement and community so law enforcement can do their jobs and community could have confidence in law enforcement. We've got about a minute left. Uh, real quick, uh, legalizing marijuana, going to happen in the state? That's, that's down the street from me. That's the legislature. <laughs> that's not your area? That's, not, that's the legislature and the governor. If that's where they go, we'll be prepared to uh, enforce the laws uh, as they write them. One more quick one. Our, our team has been involved uh, with one of the entities in your office, the ins Office of the Insurance Fraud, trying to make people aware of right. insurance fraud. Still a high priority? High priority. What is it? Insurance fraud can be anything from, from schemes to submit false claims to Medicaid fraud to even bad doctors who are selling scripts. I mean, they're defrauding the insurance system. So yeah, there's a whole range of issues. Traditionally, it was in the auto industry, but now we're seeing it uh, everywhere. It's any sort of uh, submittal of a false claim to an insurance company, uh, and, and it's really organized, and it's costing taxpayers money. Attorney General, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And, um, Let's make sure we continue the conversation as the challenges continue, not just for your office, but for everyone in the state. And uh, we wish you all the best. Appreciate it. Thanks yeah. for having me. Stay right there. Yeah. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. He's the Attorney General, and we'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org.
If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We're pleased to be joined by the mayor of uh, the great city of Patterson, Andre Sayer. Good to see you, Mayor. Thank you, Steve. And I like the way you emphasize great when you're announcing them. Is it, come on. First of all, you're walking around with the pin that says, <laughs> I love Patterson. Make the case. Why is it a great city? Well, we're the home of the Great Falls. We've got great food. And I believe we have a great future. Think about our history. We're the first planned industrial city in the country, founded by Alexander Hamilton. I very often say it's where Hamilton set the stage, a little play on the Broadway musical sure. that's popularized the first secretary of the Treasury. And I feel like because we have the diversity, we have our history, and we have the geography, we're not too far out from New York City, we can leverage those assets and ultimately make Patterson great. Patterson's got uh, 72 ethnic groups. We do. You are, You've done fact, your homework. You are the first Arab. I am. As a mayor. I am. Why is that significant? Well... Immigrants came to Patterson looking for work. Like I said before, we are a hub for industry. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that. But my mother came from Syria, Aleppo, which was hard hit by the right. war. My father's Lebanese, hard hit by another war right. in a different decade. So hardworking immigrants just wanted both, well, I have a brother. They wanted the two of us to excel in education and ultimately become responsible American citizens. Above everything, productive. What's the biggest... Uh... And by, let me put it this way. Is crime the number one issue in town? Public safety is, because if you want a stronger city, you have to have a safer city. And we've been able to reduce crime through public policy. We implemented the commercial curfew ordinance, which regulates hours of operation for establishments that are in Patterson's hotspots. Yeah. And we've reduced crime by over 70% in those areas. There's 18 different sections of the city that fall under the jurisdiction of this legislation. Does it, is it hard to bring in economic development, bring in people to put their money into Patterson while in fact they're going, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. This looks dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So other areas have happened. Newark's happening. Yep. Jersey City's happened. Patterson is about to happen. There is a tremendous level of interest from investors. We meet with big time real estate developers almost every day, my economic development director and I, and we're promoting the fact that Patterson's a place where you can invest, see a return on your investment, and it's a safe place because we're emphasizing the fact that crime is our number one priority. Let's talk education. Sure. The role of the state in Patterson right now does not exist, or does it? It still exists. We're transitioning. We've been under state control since 1991. Right. So we're at a point within the next two years, we'll wrest control from Trenton, and we'll determine our future and our fate. But respectfully, Mayor, to play devil's advocate, <laughs> one of the reasons, the biggest reason the state took over, the state said, hey, Patterson can't take care of its public schools. We That's have true. to come in because That's the true. state constitution of 47 said the state's ultimately yeah. responsible if a municipal government or if a school district, district can't handle it. I'm glad That's you what cited, happened. I'm glad you cited 47, thorough and efficient education. It's in the constitution. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, at one point, Patterson became a patronage pit. And the fiscal Otherwise picture. known as a lot of the jobs in town were going to the Board of Education, going to local schools, as opposed to focusing on the kids? Correct. Unqualified individuals. And who suffers? Yes, the children in the classroom. But is the mayor, does the mayor have a lot of influence over a situation like that? If you have a superintendent imposed by the state, state has control, you're the mayor. What does that have to do with school Right. System? And as a matter of fact, there was a question on the ballot last week that said, would you prefer an appointed school board by the mayor or an elected school board? What do you like? 
Well, selfishly, of course, I'd like an appointed school. So you'd want to appoint those school board members in your community so that they're accountable to whom? You well, or the well, kids? Look, I think it worked in New York City with Michael Bloomberg. Mm. He took, took over and essentially he refashioned the school board. I personally would prefer to do that, but how about if there's another mayor that doesn't necessarily hold education as high as far as a priority is concerned? So I actually voted against it. I, I oh, prefer, is that true? I, I want to pres preserve democracy. Okay. And it was overwhelming. It was seven to one. It was defeated seven to one. Got it. Let me ask you this. Governor Murphy, his urban <clears throat> agenda and its impact on Patterson, describe it. All right. So Governor Murphy and I have a terrific relationship. And I've told him we want to write a success story in this city. And Governor, you're going to be a co-author. There's no Define question. Define what that means. As far as... Great pros. What does it mean okay, in terms here we of go. implementation? We have 100... And, <laughs> I like... You're good, Steve. You brought your A-game today. They haven't thrown me out yet at public television. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You're almost as hot as Eli last night, so... Uh, oh, now, and I was after a giant win. <laughs> Trust me, this is on tape, so there'll be a lot of losses <laughs> after that. Go ahead. Pick it up. $130 million in state tax credits. We have three catalytic projects, one at the Great Falls, one downtown, and one in South Patterson, which is an ethnic enclave. It's Arab, it's Turkish. I call it the Halal Meatpacking District. Mm. So we're going to leverage those tax credits. We're working with the EDA, Tim Sullivan. We're making Economic sure that... Economic Development yes, Authority. Sir, correct. So we're working closely with them. The governor, over a month ago, unveiled his Economic Development Plan. I was there... Big on innovation. Correct. What does that mean in Patterson? It, well, okay, what does it mean in Patterson? I'm one of the 40 mayors around the world participating in the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative. And we're emphasizing innovation. We're emphasizing data. We're emphasizing that Patterson can become a smart city if we do everything right, which leads me to opportunity zones. Right, we opportunity be zones, the federal good initiative. Yes. Okay, so is Patterson one of the opportunity we zones? We have eight census tracts. Eight, okay, you got eight You're opportunities to get... Federal dollars into Patterson on these tracks to do what? Let's All right, so we're going to incentivize investment. Let's say, for instance, you're interested in one of these eight census tracks. There's an extended period of time where you don't pay capital gains taxes yep. so that you, you get will... a break as long as you're employing people. That's correct. So we want to incentivize investment in distressed cities. That's the terminology they right. use. In fact, I'm heading down to the League of Municipalities in Atlantic City. That's the first session I'm going to attend because my economic development director, my chief of staff, and I know that the Opportunity Zones could potentially unleash the economic engine or revive the economic engine in Patterson. Before I let you go, have you always had this level of energy? I had two cups of coffee this morning. <laughs> did you have the NJTV coffee? It's I did. awesome. It is incredible. <laughs> I got to admit, that's why I'm going to come back. I love you, but I'm going to come back for your coffee. Yeah, yeah. But, but I will tell you this. I'm optimistic. I'm enthusiastic about Patterson. It's the only home I've ever known. Yeah. It's where I brought my wife over. She's a transplant. She's a Brooklynite. We're raising our three children here. It's beautiful. So I want to make sure that Patterson is the next frontier and people know that. And I'm the cheerleader in chief for the city. Clearly you are. And Mayor, make sure you come back and keep us I updated will. On, on how things move forward. You have an open invitation here at State Thank of you, Affairs. Steve. This Thanks so much. went very well. And before I go, it's only customary. If I love Patterson, I know you do too. I love this. Thank now, I'm you, born sir. and raised in Newark, but I will... Just show that up there. Do I have to disclose this to public television standards and practices and legal department? Thank you. Thank appreciate you. It. Well Thank done. You. Stay right it. there. Thank you. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 25 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by the law firm of Gibbons, P.C., St. Joseph's Health, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey.
Valley Bank, NJM Insurance Group, New Jersey Resources, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. And by these public-spirited organizations, individuals, and associations committed to informing New Jersey citizens about the important issues facing the Garden State. And by Employers Association of New Jersey. NJM Insurance Company has been serving New Jersey policyholders for more than 100 years. But just who are NJM's policyholders? They're the men and women who teach our children, the public sector employees who maintain our infrastructure, the workers who craft our manufactured goods, and New Jersey's next generation of leaders, the people who make our state a great place to call home. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.